Welcome back to The Crucible, this time for the CMC Creative Keynote. This evening, we're going to take a different look at our theme, All Change. We're about to meet someone for whom All Change is more a call to action than a business issue, and a desperately important call to action that's needed now more than ever. This year's CMC Creative Keynote is given by a woman who is at the heart of the diversity challenge. And with diversity now at the forefront of change in the media business, including the recent Lenny Henry campaign to get more diverse faces on our screens and into our workforce, it's appropriate and timely that Jenny Seeley is joining us this evening. Jenny became deaf at the age of seven, and throughout her wide-ranging career, she has fought for the disabled and deaf community. When she was 16, her school careers advisor said she should give up any thought of theater and work in a library. She ignored the advice, and her reaction gives you an insight into her no-nonsense approach to disability and inclusion. She said, imagine how that would have turned out. Deaf people are the noisiest people in the world because we don't realize we're thumping around. A library would have been the worst place to get a job. So she did start acting and then moved into directing and is now the artistic director of Grey Eye Theatre Company. Grey Eye was founded in 1980 with the aim of dispelling prejudices, popular myths and images of defenselessness around disabled people. The company has gained an international reputation for pioneering accessibility in world-class theatre. For her, and I quote, disability theatre is about creating good plays for diverse audiences. Whether deaf, disabled or not, an audience will learn from what they see. For non-disabled people, seeing a show by Grey Eye or other disabled artists brings another layer of learning. They might have arrived with some preconceptions and presumptions, but if the work's good, it stays with them and they start to unpick their prejudices. Grey Eye's success and Jenny's talent led to an invitation to co-direct the stunning opening ceremony of 2012 London Paralympic Games. And her mission was to change perceptions. So once again, it was about change. And we'll, we'll hear whether she feels that's been achieved along with some things about where we stand as media makers, where our industry stands, and where future possibilities lie for change. Change which brings us creative advantages and, dare we say it, even business potential. And most importantly for us, about the responsibilities and opportunities we collectively face as people who talk to kids, to help them achieve a better understanding of each other and to enable every one of them to be the best they can be. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Jenny Seal. Thank you. I soon forgot to mention that I'm also going through the change. So if I'm sweating profusely, it's the lights and everything else. I'm outside my comfort zone because I do theatre and you are in the glorious world of media, of television and film and all of that. I'm just 
little grey eye, big grey eye theatre company. But first of all, things you need to know about me. Please can you put your right palm on your right nipple? <laughs> left palm on your left nipple. Rub. No, don't do that. <laughs> um, now, move your palms down so your palms are facing the heavens but your little fingers are still touching your nipples. Yeah? Now, imagine you're carrying something very big and bouncy. Let your hands bounce. <laughs> Have a very good look at me. <laughs> I'm Jenny. All deaf people, Camilla would agree with me over here, all deaf people have name signs because I'm weird more than just J-E-N-N-Y. So that's my name sign. <laughs> and that was, that was me audio describing my name sign so that blind and visually impaired people can also engage with that exercise. If I'm working in schools with young people, it's Jenny. Because I always have glasses on my head, whatever the weather, and I usually have big clunky shoes or DMs. Big glasses, big tits, big shoes. I feel balanced. <laughs> That's me. What I'd like you to do is just very quickly think about what's the essence of you. What would your sign name be? And your signing favourite is like a television here. So it's about whether you wear big ears, or you've got a glass, you've got a sparkle eye, you've got a dimple, you like football, or you're always twiddling, you've got curly curly hair. Just Take a few seconds, what's your name sign, and then we'll do a Mexican wave of name signs. So just take a few seconds. A few seconds. Think about who you are. Put the timer on. Okay, yes? Something that says who you are, and through the rest of the conference, you can exchange name signs. But we're going to start with this band, and just... Across the room. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Big name signs. Go, 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 go. So we've got that. We've got smiles. We've got curly. We've got the Hoxton beard one over here. So, so we have a name sign. Can you just be next to the person, find a partner, someone sitting near you or next to you or just behind you? Go palm to palm. Right, so here we have, we have a woman, we have a man, we have different skin colours, different ethnicities, different ages. Oh, you're very close. Very close. You're completely different. <laughs> so, brilliant. We're different. What I'd like you to do, just very quickly, using your little finger, measure from the tip of your finger, middle finger, to your elbow, how many little fingers of your partner. So I'm going to... <laughs> so, so it's one, two, three, four, five, Six. So what's that? Six and a half. Six and two thirds. So measure your partner. Yeah. So how how long is yours? Eight. Wow. Eight. What about you? Eight, five and a half, six and a half, seven, 
brilliant. So, you are going back tonight, or when you're down in the pub, or off to pizzas, whatever, you've got a name sign, you also know you've got a different hand span from somebody else, and you know how long your elbow is by someone else's little finger. You've gone away with something important, because doing this very same exercise with young people, young disabled and non-disabled young people, it's suddenly become not about looking at someone's got a wheelchair or someone's blind, someone's deaf or someone has a mobility impairment or has got an arm missing. It becomes about, oh, yes, let's find out how we're the same. Let's find out how we're different. And so a young wheelchair user might say, right, I'm going to get out of my chair. Some will go, what? You're going to lie on the floor? Yes, I want to lie on the floor. I want to see how many rotations long I am with my own chair and see how many wheelchair rotations I am with your of you. They start, the elephant goes... It goes and it's about exploring different similarities and the glorious thing about all of us, which is diversity. So, I, as Sue said, I went deaf when I was seven and so ended my relationship with television. <laughs> so I don't know why I'm here, actually. <laughs> but I did have, we had that lovely programme, I'm sure you remember, Thank you for your pictures. I'm sorry we can't return them. There's a lot of people who will not get this reference because you're far too young. But back in the day, fantastic programme called Vision On. There was about five and a half seconds of signing. It was heaven. But apart from that, pretty much bugger all. My life is divided between BD and AD. BD is before death. Before death, not death, before <laughs> death. And before death, I loved, loved, for whatever reason, the battle brush. <laughs> Again, the reference might be lost on some of you. <laughs> then AD, after death, death. God, why do I do this to myself? Um, my mum said, Jenny, that programme back on television, the one that you used to like with the, the talking dog. And I thought, oh, yes, I couldn't really remember it. So there I am, deaf, little box hearing aid, you know, earplugs there, television's on. Fuck. So there's this dog going like that. And it's like, have you ever tried to lip read a puppet? <laughs> so I just thought, right. Me being me, I'm on a mission here. I'm on a mission. I am going to lip read puppets. I'm going to learn. <laughs> I'm 50, nearly 52. I'm still on a mission. I still haven't conquered quite that. But it was at that point when I realised, oh, I'm deaf. Oh, television is not going to be my, my domain, and I'm going to really have to change how I circumnavigate classroom banter, playgroup, no, playground banter, in around what it is, not knowing what the programmes are that everyone's following. As a young person, you can sort of little one, you can sort of get away with it, but when you become a teenager, it's a bugger. I wanted to know what those programmes were. And I grew up in Nottingham, and there was a programme called, it was a bit like an early days biker grove, it was called The Kids at 37A. I swear that's what it was called. And my sister, God bless her, would sit with me and try and lip speak everything that was being said so that I could at least engage with my mates the day after, the next day in school. I do owe her. Because I was doing this, I emailed or I texted loads of my deaf and disabled colleagues around what programme did they used to remember when they were growing up. 
So, in no particular order, Steve, you're signing this. I'm going to go to Speed of Life, so good luck. <laughs> I, I treat my interpreters beautifully. OK, let's go. So, some of them you'll know, some of them boof. Crackerjack, Tomorrow's World, Hector's House, Danger Mouse. Oh, was Danger Mouse disabled because he had a patch on his eye? <gasps> Black Beauty. Blue Peter. They once had a disabled person on Blue Peter called Joey who had cerebral palsy. And I remember becoming a, that becoming a playground insult. And I was called Joey for the rest of my school life because I have CP. Bewitched. I love Bewitched. I watch lots of cartoons, but all the disabled characters are always baddies. The same as Bond film, disabled or disfigured. Disabled equals bad. There was How, Magpie, John Craver's News Around, Little House on the Prairie. Oh, do you remember when the elder daughter, oh, what's her name, went blind? Sesame Street, that always has disabled people in it, doesn't it? Americans are always way ahead of that quipster. No, they're not. What about that character in Glee? He's not really a wheelchair user. Glee, we get sandy on crossroads. <gasps> Can you remember? Oh, how proud I was, how proud I was when I saw Lisa Hammond and Francesca Martinez on Grange Hill. That was ace. But look how long it's taken Lisa to finally get a part on EastEnders. <gasps> what about Carrie Burrell? You know, all those on CBBS, all those snotty parents phoning in saying, oh, my little Jemima is going to be upset by seeing a woman with one arm. It says everything about the parents. Jesus, I didn't say that in this script. I loved Bagpuss. I hated Bagpuss. My kids loved Peppa Pig. What about the secret garden? Jen, when are you going to direct that and get the casting right? Tracy Beaker, that's brilliant storylines and casting. I wanted to be a Blue Peter presenter, but they said no, because I have curvature of the spine and I'm small, and apparently I can't do all the helicopter missions or parachute drops. Have they ever watched a Paralympic winter sport? I loved Lowell and Hardy, Mark's brothers, Buster Keaton. I'm deaf. All of those stuff was so visual and beautifully accessible. And also, as a deaf family, we loved westerns. I mean, John Wayne hardly ever removed his mouth, so we assumed he was saying bugger all. So therefore, it was death friendly so far as we were concerned. <laughs> what about Mrs. Tumble? Loads of disabled kids in that, and he used to sign. Yeah, he uses Makaton, not sign language. It is different. I wish it wasn't called something special. And one of my rolettes at Grey Eye, we have a group of artistic advisors who are all power wheelchair users. They're dangerous. I have really suffered from wheels going over my toes. But they are advisors, and they're aged from 7 to 17. And one of my little ones auditioned for Dumpy Ground because she said it's brilliant because it's got Ruben Reuter in it. She wants to be Doctor Who's sidekick. And I said, oh, come on, come on. Why can't you be Doctor Who? Change the face of Doctor Who forever. But for Doctor Who's a man, I went, hello, we've got to do some gender politics stuff with you. So, she's getting radical. She is going to be the first female disabled Doctor Who to watch the space, and you can make that happen. Everyone I spoke to, everyone pretty much, the sort of age that I'm at, said, where were we? Where were we? Well, how were we represented back then? And for deaf is, oh my God, can you imagine the change in our life when we got subtitled television? I so remember watching my first subtitled, subtitled programme, Bald It. 
I absolutely bored it. Brilliant. I think, you know, I think you should just feel quite safe in a funny sort of way that children's theatre, I mean, children's television and media, as is the children's young people's theatre, are good at it. We do effectively, I think, employ more deaf and disabled people in our work than the mainstream adult television world does. And always we're told, oh, we have to learn from the, the adult world. Bugger that. They need to learn from us. Because I really think we get what diversity can and should mean. So, a bit like Sue, my background is theatre and education. Oh my God, I loved it. I loved it. Packing a fan, early morning starts. I loved it all. But then, because it had integrity, the work was inherent understanding of diversity, the power to inform, to educate with strong emotional narrative, authentic storyline, a proper representation through casting. I loved my time at the Half Moon Young People's Theatre, Red Ladder, and with Red Ladder, actually, I performed on this stage. Maybe not the best play in the world, but about teenage pregnancy, it was all signed, really mixed casts. We did a good job, actually. Theatre Centre, Half Moon, Half Moon was trilingual a lot of the time, Slutty Bengali, English, and sign language. And it was at Half Moon when I realised, when I saw deaf kids, all disabled kids going, that woman's deaf. She's got something in her ear. It's okay to be deaf. It's okay to be different. My first director job, and I'm getting to the point about all of this, is actually about change. I went to Interplay, massively pregnant, as a trainee director. I had literally six weeks training before I went off and had a baby. Perfect timing. Interplay, do the most extraordinary work, extraordinary work for young people who have profound, complex and multiple disabilities and learning impairments. We did Shakespeare, we did The Tempest, and some of their support workers, some of their families, some of their teachers said, what are you doing stuff like that for people like that? They're not going to understand it. Excuse me, how dare you? How dare you assume and take away that right to have access to Shakespeare? But what we had to do is we had to think really carefully about the physical, visceral, the narratives and the, the textures of our costumes, the music, the set, the lights, all of it, all those different levels of engagement. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, everyone was sort of get it in their own way. And then I started to work with Mike Kenny. And if you do not know how, who Mike Kenny is, I might have to take you out to kill you. He is... As far as I'm concerned, UK's best writer for young people. And I do think it's... I can't believe that not many of his plays have been taken and adapted to television. He's awesome. So he made... We did um, Stepping Stones, which is beautiful. It was all in high queue. And it's about a young girl who wanted to leave home. And her parents said, why are you doing this? My kid's never going to be able to leave home. But it's about that spirit of independence. Your young person can find independence. Then we did an opera. Can you imagine me, deaf, doing opera? I mean, bloody hell, outside of my comfort zone or what? But it was an extraordinary experience because I learned really how to feel music, see it, goose pimples, and it became... I would say, right, oh, yes, that note, I can feel it in my elbow. So I thought, that's useful. If I can feel it in my elbow, other people might be able to think about how they... 
feel music and therefore it becomes a different sort of accessible experience. So, Grey Eye. Oh, how lucky am I? How many people know who Grey Eye are? Right, it's a fucking travesty, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not doing my job very well if you don't know who we are. We are, ladies and gentlemen, UK flagship professional disabled life the theatre campaign, and it's awesome place to work in. It's all about evolving, about change, about organisational change, staff changes, casting changes, and changing with the time, changing with the politics and the economics and everything. It's a story of the three grey eye sisters who shared between them an eye and a tooth. And that person came and stole them because he wanted to know how to kill the Medusa. They tell him, but he doesn't give them back. He throws them into the wilderness, and the myth is the grey eye sisters were left screaming and defenceless. Well, we are. Grey Eye is screaming. Screaming for a passion, a passion for inclusion and our right to be centre stage in every single creative domain that there is. And what we do do, the same as the Grey Eye sisters, is we share what we have. Seriously, if someone rocks up with no legs, I'm not going to find many legs, am I? You know, for me, it's more important, can they act? And that's what Grey Eye is about. We work with what we have rather than what we haven't got. Of course, I wasn't going to forget my, my relationship with Mike Kenny. And if, once I started to get my, my feet under the ground at Grey Eye, I started commissioning new plays for young people, as well as for adults. And I started having a very different relationship with writers because it was founded on a complete almighty fuck-up. I went way over budget, and a, a show was called the freak show, and it was in a tent, and it cost a lot of money, and it went wrong, and so we didn't have any money, but my boss said, Jenny, you still have to do a show, and it still has to be accessible for deaf and blind audiences, so I'm thinking, I can't afford that, so, and this show was particular show was, I decided to do The Fall of the House of Asher, because Stephen Burkov, who adapted, has written more stage directions than script. It's Stephen Burkhoff, isn't it? So anyway, I wrote to him and said, Stephen, do you mind if I use all the stage direction live, on stage, spoken by the performers as part of the audio descriptive narrative that is for everyone? He went, oh, wrote me a letter. Bloody hell, that's a very good idea. Yes, why didn't I think of that? And so that changed the course of history for Grey Eyes. So I started to talk, working with writers, started to say to Mike, Mike, can I Come on, write me a play where the narrative is really signable, so it could be as sign support as English or BSL, and it could be played for where young deaf people are in their learning and signing. And I want it to be completely audio descriptive, so that young blind people don't have to sit with headsets on away from the rest of the audience and have a different voice coming in. He went, oh, Jen, come on. So he wrote me the first draft of what was called Diary of Action, well, it was called Action Man. He couldn't get it. He said, Jenny, writers write about, they don't write about what people are doing. I got that first draft, I went, Mike, Mike, it's in diary form. Of course it's in diary form. It's about a young kid talking about his diary. So, I'll just read you a little bit, and you'll see what I mean, I hope. September the 8th, 2003, half past 5 a.m., 
Elspeth Dillon in his bedroom. It's night time. Everyone's asleep. Stuff is all packed away. Sorry, I did warn you. Trust no one, not even me. I'm always telling stories. It's not all lies. My dad really was a soldier. Oh, Dad, come home, please. Mum's got a boyfriend, Rob. You better come home soon. What are you doing in Manchester? Very good question. <laughs> Dad, Dad, stay there. Stay there, I'm coming to find you. I'm really coming to find you. September the 7th, 2003, 6 o'clock, Ezra's on a mission. This is the story of Ezra's mission to rescue his dad. And so Ezra, at the beginning of the show, you see Ezra with his invisible dad. And then when he goes to find his real dad, it's the same person. And that actor, when I cast him, because he was good, and that's who I wanted, deaf, profoundly deaf, BSL user. The real invisible dad, yeah, it's a very easy option for him to sign. But real dad, I got to them with play in rehearsals, and thought, of course real dad's deaf. David is deaf, I can't play him any other way. And then the whole play made sense. So when the children are signing at home with mum, she stops them, she doesn't like it. But as soon as mum's dad come and get Ezra from his dad, she goes straight into full BSL. They have this massive scale row, because that's the language that they used to have when they were married. And the two children, Ezra and his sister Louise, they have to voice over, because one, it has to be accessible for a blind audience, but two, kids do that, don't they? And the voicing over of their parents' argument was just heartbreaking. And when we asked a group of deaf kids what they liked about the play, what they felt about the play, we thought they'd like all the action man and all the, the beginning stuff. No. They went straight for that. They said, that's about real life. That's about signing. That's about how our families are complicated because we're deaf and we have all of that. It was real. Carrying on that theme of real, sometimes you have to spell it out. Disabled people are so used to being looked at. So, we did a play, Mike Henny again, sorry, I'm a bit of a sucker for him, I love him to death. He saw an article in the stage saying that there was a shortage of dwarves in the, the stage for Pantone. And at the same time, there's a whole thing about eugenics and um, get, trying to get rid of disabled people. So we've sort of like put it in around time of war, a uh, bit of mainglay going on, eugenic stuff and small people doing a panto about Snow White. This was for seven-year-olds, mind you. So, the opening shot was, once upon a time on a very wide stage stands a young woman. Once upon a time in a faraway land at a time of war stands a young woman. You don't know her yet, but because you don't know anything about her yet, you'll be noticing one thing, and probably only one thing. I'm short. Have a good look. And when I say short, Kirana is short. Have a good look. You have my permission. Okay. Now get over it. This is my story. Can I have two volunteers, please? A man and a woman. Two volunteers? Yeah? You two. Up. <laughs> Let me see. My script. Yeah. Yeah, can we, have a, can we have a microphone? Right, so just, do you mind? Um, so, these, these 
these are playing, these two are playing characters who are short, and you are Emma and you are Jared. So thank you for being my volunteers, and I don't care about um, sight reading, and, but just give it a whirl. Okay. So, you're Frida and you're Otto. So these are people of short stature. And that's Owen. And then Owen arrived. Average height and dark hair. And my dad said, Meet our new Snow White. What? Look at her. She's perfect. No. Little Otto, give her a script. <laughs> but you don't even know if she can act. No, but she looks right, and that's half the battle. She'll soon pick it up. It's not rocket science. You can teach her. No. No? No. That's my part. I thought I did it beautifully. Our show is not a beautiful show. It's a funny show. We make people laugh. That's what we do. And you will never be Snow White. Why not? You were a dwarf. A dwarf. Dad, it's only pretend. I'm an actress. I'm not a, really a dwarf. Dwarfs live in little cottages in the forest and dig in the mines. In case you haven't noticed, we don't. Don't you get clever with me, young lady. <laughs> as far as the punters are concerned, you are a dwarf. You are not, will never be, Snow White. Why not? Because people will laugh. They won't. They've been laughing at us for thousands of years. They're not going to stop now. They don't. Frida, you walk down the street, they laugh. At least in here, we take their money for doing it. Why can't I be Snow White? Just isn't going to happen. Not in my show. Then maybe I'll leave. Go on, then. I will. Do. I'm sure you'll do very well in the big wide world. So go. Join a circus. That's all you're fit for. They will put you in a snow white dress, all right, and then fire you out of a cannon into a big bowl of rice pudding because that's what dwarfs do. You'll be a freak. Is that what you want? No, Dad. I just want a chance. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you both very much. So I have the most glorious job putting on plays with meaty, meaty stuff like that. And kids come up with the most extraordinary responses of engagement, of questioning, and wanting to know about difference, and all of that. And I think I have, I really feel I have a huge responsibility to make sure that as many young people see the work we do, it's back to dispelling that elephant. And it's about young disabled and non-disabled people, young deaf people, young blind people, all being part of the same audio, all experiencing the same, same show with different means of access, but they're all there together. They belong. They belong with the narrative. And the same is true when we did The Iron Man. Do you know The Iron Man by Ted Hughes? It's the most beautiful story. And in a way, it feels like it's a real disability myth. You know, this giant Iron Man rocks up in this village. It could also be a story about immigration. He rocks up in, a, in this village and all the ads go, ah! But one boy, Hogarth, woof, he engages with him. But The Iron Man has to earn his stripes. Back to the whole disability thing, I say to my Rolettes, I say to all the actors I train, you have to be better. 
you have to be better than good and good and better and better and better than anybody else because there'll be so much scrutiny on you. So, yeah, I think because deaf and disabled people really are up against it. You know, so many directors asked me, Jenny, how do you cast? I go, oh my God, you want to know how I cast? Okay, right, okay, what I do is I put out an advert on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever, make sure it's accessible, deaf and disabled people apply, um, I get them in, we do a couple of hours workshop, and if they're good, they get the job, if they're shit, they don't. I mean, that's how you cast, isn't it? Yes. But that's what, um, what's that thing? Oh, that Jack Thorne was actually saying to me the other day, he's written the uh, Grey Eye play that's going to Edinburgh, plug, plug in the show. Anyway, but Jack Thorne said, what's interesting in the moment, he's a disabled writer, he always pushes for disabled people to be in his dramas. So the directors are willing, but not always the producers. Anyway, I'm just going to show you a showreel of some of Grey Eye stuff. It's a mixture of some of our work for young people and some of it for adults and all the rest of it. But have a look. <laughs> Grey Eye is a force for change in world-class theatre. Diary of an Action Man, 2003. This immensely expressive piece tackles its issues in a forthright, unconventional and energetic manner. Time Out. Bent, 2004. This compelling and powerful production. The Stage. Lasted. 2006. Shocking but brilliant. We are left washed out, touched, and thrillingly appalled. Evening Standard. Signs of a star-shaped diva. 2010. A remarkable piece of theatre. British Theatre Guide. The Garden. 2010. Jenny Seeley has done it again. Disability Arts Online. Limbless Night, a tale of rights reignited, 2013. A stunning mixture of drama, music, dance and aerial acrobatics, The Huffington Post. Belonging, 2014. Pioneering in the way it uses many different kinds of language, physical, spoken and sign, to create layers of meaning. The Garden. The fable's beauty became all the more magical for its scenery, massive puppets and setting. The latest seven. Against the Tide, 2010. Beautiful to watch and effortlessly flowing. Disability Arts Online. Prometheus Awakes, 2012. There are no limitations here. Just glorious liberation. The Garden.
2014, it truly is a show conceived with magnificence. The Big Issue. Reasons to be cheerful, 2010. A Grey Eye Theatre Company triumph. The Garden. Grey Eye Theatre Company. So my question Grey is Grey Eye Theatre Documentaries. It is a force for change. By championing accessibility and providing a platform for new generations of artists, Grey Eye leads the way in pioneering trailblazing theatre both in the UK and internationally. That is the voice of Amit, my associate. I'm quite interested in how we could all engage with each other and how some of the aesthetics that I mess around with that are permitted within the text and owned by the actors can happen on television. Maybe it already is, so do, do shoot me down if I'm just... It's already happening. But just things like, I've just been talking to Sue, who's doing Rocket Island. There's a deaf young person in it. There's going to be signing. And how important that is. But what about, no, subtitles are really painful to read. You never know who's talking. What about speech bubbles there? So stuff starts becoming more interactive. What about a really rich visual... How can it be multisensory in television? I'm sure you can, by really rich colours and visuals and sounds. And there's so much that I think is still really, really un unexplored. And again, that whole thing about um, the accessibility of audio description. I mean, I don't know how many young people engage with television, maybe radio, and obviously I've not done any research on radio for obvious reasons. Um, can't hear it. But presumably there are really good radio dramas and I hope that there are blind storylines and, and blind actors on those very, very programmes. I think there's a way that we can start mashing up our forms. I really do. And that will start to change. I've changed the force of British theatre through Grey Eye and our, our disabled people stance in that. And I think we can start trying to do the same with telly. I'm going to jump now because I'm going to run out of time. But I did have the most incredible opportunity to change people's perceptions in and around impairment of what we can and cannot do by being part and co-directing with the lovely Bradley Hemming the opening ceremony of the Paralympics. You know, I was just a little regular deaf kid struggling away in mainstream school, lip reading for my country. Where did this ambition of fire come from? Came from? It's because I'm deaf and because I've been allowed to live in my... Because of, of lack of opportunity, lack of access, I've lived in my own bubble and just watched and created my own layers of access for me. And that stood me such a good deed to become a director. And also, I'm justice. I'm you know, hell-bent on justice, equality and inclusion. So, to have that stadium, yes! And, you know, I'm sure that some of the people that appointed us thought that Jenny Brad would do a nice little show, you know, like Beijing, they did the Teletubbies. Well, fuck off, we're better than that. <laughs> Seriously, Bradley and I were going to do a rich, emotional, universal narrative, and, my God, were we going to have as many deaf and disabled people on that stage thinking about... I mean, Diversity in its broadest sense, class, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, age, all of it. We had it all. My, one of my first meetings with volunteers, so I'm going anecdotal now, with this brilliant, brilliant 
um, real working class Bethel Green woman came up. She said, Jenny, guess how old I am? I think I'm the oldest person here. And she looked good. She said, what, how old are you? She said, don't tell them. I'm not supposed to really be here, but I'm 87. <laughs> I, I mean, what? what? What do you use? She said, oh, I've got a 50-year-old lover. We have sex a lot. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, sorry. But so we created this narrative of discovery of self, humanity, the enormity of our history and our place in the world, completely based on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We had Ian McKellen as Prospero, and rehearsing with him, he's such a glorious lovey, I do love him, he said, Jenny darling, what's happening after I've just done my bit? Do I just go off? What's happening next in your narrative? I said, oh, Ian, it's, it's our, it's our um, bit about empowerment. It's our equality bit, we're doing spasticus autisticus. What the I'm doing that. Stage manager, come over here. Um, I want one of those coats that everyone's going to be wearing. I want a banner that says equality. I did find Stonewall, you know, darling. <laughs> and there he was, on that book, the Declaration book, with his protest banners, singing and cheering, spasticus autisticus. Oh my God, so we had a you know, 25 foot inflatable of Alison Lapp, and we had Stephen Hawking on the main stage. Beverly Knight, Lizzie Emma, Spasticus Autisticus. I swear to God, if any of you have the wherewithal to help me get reasons to be cheerful, our Ian Joey inspired musical that you saw on there, made into TV, because it's gorgeous. And God knows with the present government, we need a reason to be cheerful. Um, but when we did the first show in New Woolsey of Reasons to be Cheerful, a 12-year-old asked to come backstage to meet us, and I was going, 12? That's not good, because for those of you that who Ian Jury, we had Plasto Patricia in the, so, in the show, and we had Hit Me. Both of them were quite meaty and fruity with language. But this 12-year-old wasn't interested in that. He rocked up and said, thank you. I'm spasticus autisticus. I'm autistic. So thank you for saying I can beat spasticus autisticus. Then he cried. The first time in his 12 years that he acknowledged that he was autistic. And the rest is history with him. Gorgeous young man. Anyway, sorry, back to sports day. So the Paralympics. <laughs> I had 44, I know it's not very many in the grander scheme, I'm thinking about how big that stadium is, but we really had 44 deaf and disabled artists. Well, they weren't artists, they were former Royal Marines, ex-army, hairdressers, get-home mums. The one thing they all had in common was they were disabled, they had strong core muscles and a real sense of the devil and risk-taking. And they were absolutely on board to become circus performers and to be in the air in that stadium and make that statement. Loved it, and that changed how circuses taught forever and ever. We found a whole inclusive language. Oh, in that stadium, 67,000 people shouting, Spasticus, 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 Autisticus, or singing, I am what I am, with Beverly and I, the final song. Because we are all, indeed, our own special creations, are we not? Oh, goose pimples. I cannot tell you how disappointed I was. Disappointed that that euphoria could not last because another change happened 
a bloody, bloody, brutal change happened. And this is where we, I need you. You have no idea how much I need you. We fell from grace. Two things. Channel 4, apologies if you work for Channel 4, you did us a massive favour because the billboard said, thank you for the warm-up. It's a comment to the Olympics that the powers was going to be the real thing, and it was. But Channel 4 also created a massive crime in my book. Nobody, nobody contacted me about my artists or wanted them, apart from Channel 4. And who did they want them for? They wanted my artists and deaf and disabled volunteers for their programme, The Undateables. And I'm sorry, that is not the legacy I wanted for my, my artists at all, or the legacy of the Paralympics. But it gets worse. While we were doing our great big show, the government was silently cutting what is called the Independent Living Fund. And I don't know whether you know what that is. It's a fund of about 350, 400 pounds given to individual disabled people so that they can book their own PAs to support them with eating, shopping, cleaning, hoisting them to the bathroom, putting them to bed. They help facilitate that these people's independence. So Esther McVeigh decided don't need it anymore. So that was going to be closed down. So we had a battle on our hands. The second thing, access to work. God love them, or oh, I did. Access to work pays for Steve. It means I can have access. I had access to work with all those people in the Paralympics. I have access to my job at Grey Eye. I know I can speak, but I can't hear. And I need him. And I need all the other interpreters, like you need your interpreters, Camilla. So we have had cut, 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 cut. My first letter from them was, Jenny, you could go down from 48 hours a week of sign language interpreting to 72 hours a month. How am I supposed to do my job? How am I supposed to do my job? And the money doesn't work. You know, for our independent living fund, it's 340 £50, £400 a week. All those people now are going to care homes, and it costs £3,500 to be in a care home. When I, when I work, I pay tax, and I employ Steve, and he pays his tax. Don't you, Steve? Good boy. <laughs> um, so for every pound that's spent, one pound full shake goes back to the treasury. So, I don't get the maths, and on, on Monday, um, John Kelly, who is in Reasons to be Cheerful and in the Threepenny Opera, and a massive activist, wore a horse. I was the back end of a horse, and it's a horse a bit like an ice cream carton, cartoon horse, and I was the tail, John's in a wheelchair with electrics. We paraded up to Parliament gave a petition of only 225,000 signatures, which is, we needed more, to say, please don't cut us. And there were so many of us, mainly the wheelchair user lot, with incontinence pads, because that is what they're giving them. They're giving people incontinence pads rather than pay for care so they can go to the loo when they want to go to the toilet. They're going to sit in their own piss. It was the most extraordinary day of just unfathomable grief. And Sophie, who you saw be raised up in the tower, Sophie, who's physically very wee, but I never think of her as wee. She's a big personality. She's all about shows. She's active. She's out there doing stuff. She's a puppeteer. I can't live with puppets, so we have an argument every time she's at a puppet show. Um, but she's extraordinary. 
But on that day, she looked like Polly Pocket, so tiny. So, this is where I need you lot. I need you to be informed in and about everything to do with the ILF and access to change. Because diversity, good old Lenny, Lenny Henry, I'm brilliant being on the Olivia stage with the Act for Change thing. Diversity is like a hot subject. Everyone wants it. Good, about bloody time. But if you want to have those deaf and disabled artists in your programmes, working for you and all the rest of it, like I want them on my stage, like I want them on the National Theatre stage, it's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen because the government are changing what we are allowed or not allowed to partake in. They're creating a slow, torturous death where we will fade, fade away. So please, we're better than that, all of us together in this room, aren't we? We can affect real change. I want you to come on board with me as media partners or, or tutors or writers or whatever because I'm helping, I'm not letting this lie. I'm going to be training a group, we can only put enough money for six. Six young people aged 60 to 25, work-based learning over the next year because I want them to be storming the stages, storming your screens. Then I'll get another six, I'll get 10, I'll get 20. And we start building a really big deaf and disabled arts community just to say to the government, you know what? We ain't going anywhere. So on that note, can you stick your two fingers in the air? <laughs> oh, not, not like that, no, 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 no. come on, there's no swearing here. Um, it's like that, put your hands on your shoulders and flick your fingers up. So that is a sign for assertive, don't mess with me, feisty. So together we are going to change and we are going to remember, because we have to remember, that the Paralympics did make change even though, and I just have to read you this because it makes me feel a bit sick, two-thirds, 67% of the British public feel uncomfortable talking to disabled people. If we were more visible right across the creative industry, people won't be scared. They will just see us as people with hearts and minds, people who shit, people who fuck, people who eat, you know, all that stuff. So I'm just going to show you the final clip, just the Paralympic highlights, because that, when I watch that, it restores my faith in what I need to do, what I can do, but what I need to do in partnership with all of you. So can we just show the Paralympic one, please? Our eyes, our ears, shine your light on the beautiful diversity of humanity. Look up, stretch your wings and fly.
is no such thing as a standard or run-of-the-mill human being, but we share the same human spirit. What is important is that we have the ability to create. However difficult life may seem, there is always something you can do, but succeed at. The games provide an opportunity for athletes to excel, to stretch themselves and become outstanding in their field. So let us together celebrate excellence, friendship and respect. Thank you for the bottom of my heart for a truly, truly inspiring keynote. Um, I'm quite sure that if anyone came into this theatre, I'm actually so moved I can't actually speak. I'm quite sure that if anyone came into this theatre feeling that inclusion and diversity was a difficult challenge that we have to think about, but it's a bit difficult, you, like me, will be going out feeling excited about the possibility of inclusion. Um, and the potential. So thank you very, very, very much. We don't have an enormous amount of time, about 10 or 15 minutes, but I'm quite sure that there are people here who would like to ask questions of Jenny. So um, if you put up your hands, I will, um, it's actually quite difficult to see, but I will, if you put up your hands, if you have a question, um, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Uh, it's, that's important, particularly important today, so that, Steve, so that Steve can actually hear the question and sign it to Jenny. Um, so, do we have any questions? Yes, lady with the, over there. Hi Jenny, um, I'm a theatre maker as well, and I got mentored by Mike Kenny. And I absolutely concur with what you're saying about the fact he's written amazing plays and they, they should be, um, TV is a wonderful writer. 
Um, I would like to say how important do you think it is to have schemes that train, like the BBC ones, that train artists with disabilities so that they have access to media, theatre, professionals, so that they get on that first, maybe emerging artists, they get on that first rung. I think it's vital. Would you not agree? I mean, the thing that I said that the act, act for change thing, because Rufus knows that the National was talking about excellence. You know, he said, hand on heart, I don't, uh, I haven't worked much with deaf and disabled people, but I, ex but I expect excellence on my stage. It's like, oh, come on, that's patronising to think I don't expect excellence. But also, for most of us, getting our foot in the door of those drama schools is really, really difficult. So the more schemes and support and initiatives it's fantastic, but you have to follow it through. It's not good enough just having one, one little role in a television thing. You, we don't get better unless we have more and more opportunity to perfect our craft, to play a real multiple of roles. So that's, that's really the agenda. First step and all the other ones after that as well. Thank you. Another question. Yes, lady here. You said you wanted uh, all, our, um, us, all of us to support you. Um, can you give us some practical ways in, in which we could? I think it's about talking to your local MPs. I think it's about writing letters to people ahead of all the bombing, but they've got lots of head of TV and creative people here. You know, really support us to lobby the government, write letters to newspapers, Go on the, uh, the Save the ILF website and stop the changes to access to work website and sign up and find out what's going on so when there are marches and rallies, come with us. Because you are you working across a wider spectrum than I do. And also television reaches many, many more people than theatre. So if there's any way of infiltrating the system, <laughs> please do it. Thank you. Any more questions? Yes. Uh, hi. Um, next year, I am going to be chair of a student theatre company. And um, by this time next year, we want it to be, or well, I personally really want it to be, so that um, every performance, sorry, there is a performance every two weeks that is signed. Um, there is a scarcity of student interpreters, which is making it massively challenging to get this kind of initiative off the ground. Um, what sort of advice do you have to make it so that this can be possible? The, the best advice is if you're going to have, just in terms of the economics of it, and I do argue this quite a lot with the theatres, to have more access, if you have a deaf, a deaf actor in your shows, if access to work goes according to plan, that deaf actor will have access to an interpreter, and then they all become part of the whole theatrical narrative. And you can have them in and around the mix, working with that deaf artist, or the deaf artist signs themselves, and the interpreter voices over. In terms of working with student interpreters, I feel I also have a huge amount of responsibility to start giving them more opportunities. Because of their whole access to work thing, they're not getting those jobs anymore, and they're not developing their skills. So do, I'm just Jenny at greyeye.org. Just email me, and maybe we could have a further conversation about what's best to do, because I'm absolutely on it with you, and I'll do whatever I can. Yeah. Thank you. Another question? Probably got time for a couple more. Yes, gentleman here. Uh, thank you, Jenny. Um, 
I didn't manage to get tickets for the opening ceremony, but I, I live nearby and we stood on the edge of the Olympic Park uh, with our phones in our hands watching the TV uh, and we could hear the crunch of the apple and we, we watched the guy abseiling down with the torch in his hand and it was, it was, even that was fantastic, so thank you. Uh, what I wanted to ask you was um, about the legacy in terms of the public opinion of, of disabled people uh, since the Olympics, obviously the actions of our government in the last uh, however many years have been been pretty horrific, but in, in terms of the eye of the general public, do you think that that warmth and that, that legacy and that change has sustained among, among people in general, or do you think a bit like the Olympics itself, the, uh, the shine kind of remains in the past, basically? Oh no, that quote that I read out that 67% uh, of people find it difficult to uh, talk to a person who's disabled, and 36% of people don't think disabled people are very productive. Those figures came out in the end of 2014. So that's part of my heartbreak is, you know, what more to have to do? And I, I'm sorry, I don't get it. I don't get it. It makes me incensed. It really, really does. So public opinion hasn't shifted enough. But so much of that is the government's fault because they brand us as benefit scroungers and they dismiss us and all the rest of it. And that's why I'm held back when I was having a really visible public profile in theatre, television, film, radio, all of it. You know, just say, hang on a minute, we are not going anywhere. That's what's really, really important, the visibility of it. And that's when it starts to change public perception. Because we become part of the norm, we're just always on the telly. It's great. It's really easy. Sorry. Thank you. I think we've got time for one more question. Jenny has to go off, unfortunately, because I think it's your son's graduation. To, so My you... son is graduating in film at Bournemouth Art College hey. tomorrow. So if you have a job, if you have any job, you let me know. You've got to get a job. So one more question, just to finish off. Yes, Greg. Hello, Jenny. I just wondered, given that you were presumably involved in the invasion of Parliament, what you thought of how far that pushed the disability question and how far do you think it should be pushed? So, I'm sorry, we have a government that don't care. They don't care. They don't have the reference points of what it is to have no money, what it is to have to wear a constant pad, what it is to be marginalised. They don't have any understanding of what it feels like to have your independence taken away. And only when is it taken away do you realise how important it is that word independence. So we've just got to lobby like hell. I'm sorry I'm not answering your question, but it's really important that we infiltrate. <laughs>